The Culture Pop Podcast is brought to you by the Law Offices of Jacob M. Ronnie. Accident or injury, call Jacob M. Ronnie. Call Jacob. Hey, it's Mace. If you or a friend or loved one is injured in an accident, the first person you should call is my friend Jacob. When I did this, Jacob was great. He helped me by talking through the next steps, which really put my mind at ease. When you're injured in an accident, you got to have an expert. That's why you call Jacob, just like I did. Call Jacob, 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. Or visit calljacob.com. Call Jacob. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason, along with Sue Kalinske. Uh, we got a great guest coming up, Rich Cohen, the author of When the Game Was War, about uh, the NBA's historic 1987-88 season when we were talking about Larry Bird and Magic Johnson and uh, Isaiah Thomas and, of course, Michael Jordan. So that's coming up for you. Make sure you're here for that. Sue Baloo, what's, what's new? You were away, right? Yeah, I went to Cabo San Lucas. Nice. Now, wh- well, where is, is that near Cabo? Cabo? Well, well, I we were in a place that was midway between Cabo San Lucas and Cabo San Jose. Okay, a lot Have of Cabos. Been? No, I've oh, never been to Cabo. A lot of Cabo going on. Are there? Wait a minute. So, how many Cabos are there? There's. Is there? What's the main Cabo? And then, Cabo what San- are the assistant Cabos? Well. <laughs> There's Cabo adjacent. Yeah. Hey, DJ. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't know exactly the town we were in, but yeah. all I know is we were midway between the two uh, big vacation spots. Okay. So in now, the middle Cabo of the Cabo San Lucas. Cabo San Lucas is where a lot of people go. Um, but I actually like Cabo San Jose better because it's very artsy mm. and... Um, it's just a, a lot more happening there. Better shops, yep. you know, instead of like, you know, the like real like crappy souvenir stuff that you would never buy. You so know, what's a Sue and Tom vacation like? Are you guys out exploring? Do you rent a car? Do you stay at the resort? Do you just lay around and drink fancy drinks with umbrellas? What, what's your Cabo like? I did not go with Tom. Oh, you're kidding. Who'd you Don't. go with? He doesn't uh, know no. you went to Cabo. <laughs> he doesn't know. He doesn't know I went. <laughs> well, I know he, he doesn't. Like, he was listen, like, "Where so are no you? you? You said you were going to the store. You've been gone for four days." Um, I went with Kathy Ladman. Oh, we love Kathy. She's the best. Uh, we we have a, a mutual friend that has a timeshare. Oh, nice. So I don't know if you know anything about timeshares. If I know, ever- I know that I hear a lot of commercials about people trying to get out of them. Get- so right away, you would think, why would I ever want to get a timeshare yes. when they actually have created a cottage industry of getting you out of it? Yes. Okay? Yes. So we were uh, we were warned by our friend, but mm-hmm. she warned us after we already agreed to do the tour. Right? Yeah. She said, whatever you do, do not go on the tour. Oh, so yeah. We, so then we we already we already decided we were going to do it. And we said, uh, too late, we're doing it. And and the reason what, what happened was when we got um when we got to the Cabo airport, yes, you know, all these people greet you, you know, with giving you rides and you know, yeah, I'll um, take I'll take you to your hotel. Yeah, I'll all take this you here stuff, yeah. or you know, here, go out and get a margarita. The margarita was it was like forty two dollars for two margaritas. Oh my god. Anyway, well, we got one anyway. <laughs> sure, of, why not? Forty two dollars for one margarita? No, two. Oh, two. two. Well, that's yeah. basically uh, stadium prices. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's airport. Yes. And uh, they actually were pretty big and they were very strong. Okay. And they probably have you drink that and then you'll then you'll agree to do to get a timeshare. Right. Yeah. <laughs> now, did you have to go through the whole presentation where the sales okay. pitch and all so, that stuff? So this, all right. So this is what happened. So this guy approaches us mm-hmm. and he asked us if we had a ride to our hotel. Right. And we said, yes, we already, you know, prepaid back and forth. So he says, oh, come sit. You know, so he's telling us that um, he didn't say anything about timeshare, but he said, um, if you, you know, um, I can offer you a breakfast tomorrow morning and two, mas- two massages because the massages at the resort were, were expensive. Two- sure. They were like $200 for yeah. like a 50 minute massage. So we were like, okay. And, and, and we know that it's 90 minutes of your time, blah, blah, blah. So he's doing his spiel. And then he says to us, and I just want you to know that I'm protecting you from what's going to happen when you get to your resort. What? Yeah. Like I'm, I'm protect because like they're going to try to do a deal with us. So wait a minute. So the people that picked you up at the airport were trying to do a deal on a timeshare while he, you were on your way to another, another timeshare? They, they weren't the shuttle people who was picking me up. They were people there that just greet you. And you don't know you who just they get are. in their car and go away. No, 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 no. He didn't have a car. Okay. He just wanted to know if we had a ride and he wanted to know where we were staying. Oh, now, they asked you for all this information. Yeah. But he was just a shyster. You know, he was just somebody who was trying to get us get two unsuspecting women from the States. Yes. To go to a place that he probably gets a kickback for yeah, if he right. gets people to agree to go on the tour. Yes. Right? So the only reason why we wanted to do it was because we wanted to get massages. So yeah. we're like, okay. So- <laughs> we had no intention of getting a timeshare. Yeah, right. So so we give him, I guess we gave him $70. We gave him $90, okay. right? So it turns out that the the massages would have been like thirty something dollars a piece, and then an additional twenty dollars that he said we would get back when we meet for breakfast the following morning. So we're like, okay, fine. You're like, hey, you know, this is great. We're gonna get cheap massages, blah blah. So we get to the resort, yeah, and the concierge um, says, so do you have anything planned? Any activities planned? And we yes. said no. And of course, immediately she starts going into, you know, timeshare. Yeah, right? Oh, God, yeah. So we told her we already gave money to somebody at the airport. And she says, oh, she says, well, whatever they offered you, we will match and we'll give you 20 uh, coupons for drinks, 10 for alcohol, 10 for soft drinks. So at this and- point, you did not go there to buy a timeshare. No. <laughs> Oh. So why are you accepting all of these? Like, no, no, no. I would just no, say, no, 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 we, no, 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 no. We we got went to the resort where we're staying, which okay. has timeshares. This it. is where our friend has a timeshare. That's how got we it. ended up there. Yeah. So, um, and that's why our friend said, "Don't let them, you know, try to, you know, corral you into the timeshare thing because they're relentless. They're very tricky. Yes. And you just don't want to do it." But we already said we were going to do it. So okay, we, you know. so so you go to see the presentation, and then what? So so the next morning, we're supposed to you know meet uh, this woman in the lobby, and we're supposed to have a breakfast at nine o'clock. And then yeah. we said to them, "Is the is the breakfast part of the ninety minutes? Because we're thinking we just want ninety minutes. Free, you want a free breakfast in ninety minutes? 
well, we said, is the 90 minutes part of it? Yeah. Because we said, after 90 minutes, we're gone. Yeah. You know? So they, um, so, so we, we, uh, get to, they put us in a room. You right. feel like you're in like, um, you're in like, uh, don't worry, darling, or, you know, you're, you're in this like universe where you don't trust anybody. You're just put into a room. Right. <laughs> and we're, we're like, okay, so here we are with the other suckers. Yeah. You know, yeah, right. Right. And Kathy and I are just, you know, being silly as usual and we're laughing. And so this guy comes in. And he introduces us to this young woman, very, very beautiful, beautiful young okay, woman. Okay. okay. So she's the she's the opening act. Okay. Yeah. Right. So right. She, she takes us to breakfast. Yeah. And she's very, very nice. She's not pushy at all. Her job is not to be pushy. Her job is just to give us facts. Okay. But she but she started to ask some information about our personal life, like you know. Um, you know, how many times a year do you do you vacation? Right. Where, right. If if you were to go anywhere, where would you like to name three places that you would like to go? Um, you know, uh, when was the last vacation that you took? And 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 then we had to let her know. I said, you know, we're not a couple. You know, it's like <laughs> I and and because they thought that the two of us sure, were maybe right? going to buy a timeshare yeah, together, right. right? So, and it's so funny because, you know, I always wear my wedding ring and, you know, years ago, two women traveling, if I were wearing a wedding ring, everybody would think I was married, but yeah. married to a guy. Nowadays, you wear a wedding ring. They're like, oh, yeah. doesn't matter. You're, you're, maybe you're married to this woman. Sure. So I said, I can't do anything, make any decisions without my husband. So she's like. Oh, okay. You, can you call? And I said, no, I'm not calling him. He'll kill me. If I call him up about a timeshare, we are so not buying a timeshare. <laughs> and, and like, we, I, I didn't want to be so transparent to say, look, we're just here for the massages, you know? Why not? Well, why not just say, look, do your spiel, do your song and dance, then let's get breakfast and a massage. Why? Because yeah. there's no, you went through this entire charade, right? Well, you had to. You had to. Oh. So, so the woman, uh, she, uh, you know, I, we said to her, you know, look, um, we'll, we'll go, we'll look at, you know, we'll look at the property. So she takes us to, um, a property that looked just like the room we were in. And then there was a studio, but they don't tell you anything about how much it's going to cost. They don't want to, they don't want to, you know, they, they want you to kind of commit without even telling you knowing how much, how it, much it costs. Yeah. Right. So, and it's so funny because Kathy and I were really laughing when we were in the first room before right. we met the woman. And she says, you know, I looked in the room and I saw you two and you were laughing and having a great time. And I thought, these are the people that I want to be with. Right. And, uh, you know, I said, I looked at Kathy and I'm like, yeah, the, the two knuckleheads who are comedians who <laughs> are, are laughing and we're so not buying a timeshare. You really, it, door, door number one, door number two, door yeah. number three, you, you open door number three and you got a donkey. I mean, it's like, there's no way in the world we're doing this. Anyway, so then they take us after breakfast, they take us to another room. She takes us to another room. And she gives us a little more information about the global aspect. Like you can go to places in Africa. You can go to Scotland. You, you know, we have properties in England, blah, blah. Still have no idea how much this costs. And then she says, I got to bring somebody. Now I'm going to bring in somebody else. The closer. Basically, it's Alec Baldwin. A -B -C -A well, she was, she was the closer. She was the closer, but she had like 
she had such um, issues with the fact that we weren't biting. Yeah. And she started to get very, very sad. And I thought she was going to start crying. Sad. Oh, that's a good yeah. play. And I, we just looked at her and said, look, it's not personal. <laughs> we don't have them. And then she finally told us, to, told us how much it was. So it was like $35,000 and you had to give them like $9,500 today to get that deal. And then it's $500 a month um, with 14% interest. Oh, God. So we were like, we're not doing it. So then she makes some adjustments, right? And she, so then it, it drops down to $5,000, 400 something dollars a month. And we, we looked at it and said, let's just be clear. We are not buying a timeshare. We're not doing it, right? And she yeah. just kept on pushing and pushing. So then she brings over her supervisor, some mm -hmm. guy. He comes over and he had the balls to say to Kathy when she said, I can't afford this. Yeah. He says, well, maybe you could um, put it on a few credit cards. Oh, God. And we looked at him and said, well, you know, that's, that's a little nervy of you to say that and so disrespectful. We're not going into debt to get a timeshare. No, at some point, don't you have the option to just say, no, 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 no. Where's my massage? <laughs> That's what I would have said. I know. It's like, yeah. And actually, the woman, the, the second woman said, you're getting something out of this, right? And we said, yeah, you're damn straight. We're getting something out of this. We're getting massages and we're getting free drinks. Well, and that's what this, was promised to after us. After all this, you need a massage and drinks. Oh, my God. I needed a drink just sitting there. So how so did then, it turn out? How did it turn okay. out? Okay. So, so then, you know, the joke was, you know, finally, you know, we were basically released. She took us down. Oh, well, she takes us down and we go into another and into another room. How many different some, rooms did you go to? This is the fourth room we go into. That's why it felt like. like what a scam. Like they were going to shoot us up with some serum to make us buy it. <laughs> so we, this other guy comes in and he's got a piece of paper and we looked at him and said, we're not buying a timeshare. Okay. <laughs> I don't know how many times, how many ways we have to tell you this. We're not buying a timeshare. And so he put a line through the paper and he said, okay, uh, it's fine. And he didn't try to push it further. Right. We went to the cashier. We got our certificates for our, for our massage. We got our drink coupons. Yes. And then the joke was everywhere we went, you know, the waiter comes over and it's like, you know, do you want, you know, an appetizer and do you want something to drink and do you want to buy a timeshare? <laughs> and then, and then I, we called up Tom to let him know what was going on. And he said, yeah, then you go to the entertainment and there's a hypnotist. And he's saying, you're getting sleepy. <laughs> you're getting, you want to buy a time shift. Oh, God. God. So, what an experience. Was it even worth it? It couldn't have been worth it. It was so worth it. Oh, it was, was it really? It was so worth it because Kathy is going to have another five minutes of stand-up from, from oh, this. Oh, from this. Because sure. we were writing jokes the whole time. And, uh, and we got great massages. And then we got free drinks. Yeah. All right. So how long was the entire hellish process? It was 90 minutes. 90 minutes. Oh, God. Yeah, I went to a timeshare once. Uh, my brother is a timeshare. And uh, we, so I go to the front desk. I think it was like the Wyndham or something like that in Vegas and go to the front desk. I'm checking in. Uh, would you like a, a presentation about? Nope. Nope. Not here for that. I, I don't care what they offer me. I'm not going to sit there and do this pretend act that you had to do. 
What a that's a terrible experience. Well, it felt like lost in America, you know, with the nest egg. It was like, oh, don't yeah. say time, don't <laughs> say share. Yeah, you right. Not say time, share. Don't please, yeah. don't don't utter those words. Well, I I guess it's safe to say you do not own a timeshare in Cabo. I do not. I do. Well, good not. for you. You fought it off. So um, I wanted to talk about a couple. First of all, you know, Sue, this is what I've learned. It's a bitch being a fan, isn't it? Wow. Yeah, I know. Dodgers go out. I I was thinking about you a lot. Oh, it was just brutal. And, you know, I I know it's not, maybe it's not normal. I, it affects me for a week. Like I'm down for a week. Like finally today I was like, all right, I can move on with my life. They lost. It was terrible. It'll be a good story someday. I'm moving on uh, because otherwise I personalize these losses and I take it on myself. Like it was me out there throwing uh, in game one, like Kershaw or me, you know, uh, giving up home runs like Lance. I take it all very personally. I, I do too. You know how insane I am? Hmm. The Mets were what? 20 something games yeah, they out were, of contention. They were not there. Yeah. I was pissed off the last series when they were losing games. It was like, there's no way in the world these guys right. are going anywhere. You mean the but, meaningless but series you were upset with? I, I just get pissed off when they lose. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. And they were 20, like 20 something games out. I was still upset. Yeah. This but, one, I was more pissed off than I was sad. Yeah. Now, now I want to ask you something. So yeah. I know that pitching was was you know was was a, a real had issue. been decimated yeah yes had been decimated um do you think that there was anything that roberts could have done mm-hmm. to to change the outcome of of these games well he had a number of moments including especially pointing out that he allowed lance lynn to continue to give up home runs had he pulled him after two, which I think was the reasonable thing, then the Dodgers are still in that game. They're down two nothing. Four nothing is a much bigger hole and changes the entire dynamic of the game. So I thought that was a huge mistake. And I wonder too, and I've I've said this, I said this on the radio. I and I blamed Dave Roberts for a lot, and I probably blamed him for too much, but I think. There's no answer for how they're going to fix this going forward. There's no specific way. Like, we're going to do this. We're going to make this change. We're going to do nothing like that. When Friedman had his press conference, basically the answer was, we're keeping Dave and I don't know. We're keeping Dave and I don't know is not good enough an answer. Well, it wasn't only pitching. I mean, you know, they're, you know, they're star. Oh, yeah. Mookie and Freddie combined one for 21. It's terrible. They weren't hitting. So, you know. I wanted to show you this. Yeah. This. They had uh, Vamos Rams Day at uh, SoFi Stadium. So they handed out all of these. Can you see it? Yes. Very, Very this cool. Is, I, I hang all this stuff in the studio. So this is a banner, basically? It's like, uh, it's kind or of like is a, it is it kind of like a wrap? I think it, no, I think it's a flag. It's a flag, okay. But I just waved it like this. Oh, you, you were doing that? Yeah, I was waving during the game. Yeah, I see. I don't do that kind of stuff. The great thing about this last game, the Rams in Arizona, 
Arizona does not have any fan base whatsoever. So that stadium was all Rams fans. And so for the first time, I'm not sitting around high rollers. I'm sitting on regular rank and file Rams fans. And we're MF and everything. It's like, this is the way a football game is supposed to be. What the F is he? What the fuck is he doing? What's, why is he? What's your best play? McVay? It's like everybody was really emotional and into it. And it was the most fun I've had at a Rams game in a long time. So if there were kids around, would you be? No, talking I like would that? not. I would not MF everything. Okay. These are all grown up, cranky fans. I would. You would still do it if there were kids <laughs> around? Mm-hmm. No. Yeah, I would. No, you wouldn't. Yeah, I would. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> do you know that that celebrity <laughs> um, golf thing where I met you? Yes. Right. Yeah. Well, they had interns that um, kind of caddied for us a little bit. And these okay. were like probably in, I don't know, junior high school. Or I didn't something. get one. I don't think you had one. I didn't get one. Did you play golf too? That, no. Oh, that? I'm sorry. Caddies. I thought you meant like somebody to bring you drinks and stuff. No, no, no. They were caddies. And, caddies, and they yeah. were, yeah, they were, you know, just, they didn't really do anything. I mean, I, they, I don't think they carried our clubs. I don't even know why they were there anyway. So I am um, very expressive when I miss shots, oh, as yeah. you know. I've I, been I, on I, the course with you, yeah. Okay. So, you know, there were a bunch of times where I- But if know, there was a little kid in our hit. foursome, you'd watch your mouth. No. So they were like young. They were young kids. And like whenever little, I would hit tiny an Aaron, kids? Well, they were like in junior high school. Oh, and you were swearing in front of them? Oh, it's like if I hit an Aaron shot, I was like, fuck. Shame <laughs> on you. Shame on you. Oh, stop it. <laughs> shame on you. Don't shame me. Um, I want to do one more thing here. Um, so I went to the Pink concert. Pink, I, I went to see Taylor Swift. I went to see Beyonce. And I went to see Pink, all at SoFi. It was like the Triple Crown. Got to Try see all three of them. You know who put on the best show? Pink. Pink. She's unbelievable. She is unbelievable. I mean, she, three different times, was up on trapezes and... Had those, uh, you know how they do that in the, with the uh, silks, you know, where mm-hmm. you're hanging from the... And then the last one, she flew from one side of SoFi to the other. It was unbelievable. It's like Peter Unbelievable. Pan. She, I, and so not only is she, and she does all, obviously all her own singing, she sings during all of these stunts and she sings flawlessly. She knows how to put on a show and she's an athlete on top of being a performer. She's an, she's an actual athlete. So I thought hmm. that was the best. Now I did see the Taylor Swift eras tour movie mm-hmm. that I can tell you here, since one does not listen to the show, I got dragged to because I already saw the concert and the movie oh. is just the concert. But it was nice. I fell asleep a little bit. I woke up for that 10-minute song. She sings about Jake Gyllenhaal in the sweater. You know that one, right? Uh, no. Oh, yeah. So somewhere along the line, Taylor Swift left her sweater at Maggie Gyllenhaal's house. So <laughs> the song is about how Jake Gyllenhaal should give her that scarf back. And she does a 10-minute song about this scarf. Um, and it's, she actually announces right in the middle, I'm, I'm going to do this 10 minute song. And she did 10 minutes on how Jake Gyllenhaal stole her scarf. Seriously. Yeah. Yeah. All of her songs are about past relationships in some way. So, I mean, which, did she have a relationship with him? Yeah. Oh, she, she had a relationship. No, she had a relationship. With with, she and, she and Jake were together. 
Oh. They were together. And so this scarf is symbolic of, I don't know, her loss of her innocence. I don't know. It is kind of a weird thing when someone kind of keeps a trophy of yours. Um, I'm not going to mention names, but there was somebody that I worked with many, many years ago, a writer who Mm -hmm. had a crush on me. And um, we all went back to his house one night. And, you know, everybody who worked on the show went back to his house. And I I don't know why I took my socks off, but I took my socks off sometime during the night. And I couldn't find one of my socks. He kept your sock? He kept one of my socks. Oh, that's creepy. That's like, that's like I would be concerned after that. Somebody's got my sock. I've seen him since, you know. Have you? Does he still have the sock? Have you ever brought it up? I, I think I may have brought it up a couple of times, like like years and years ago, but now I- Is no. he somebody we could have on the show to ask about the sock? No. Because no. <laughs> that's good stuff right there. Dude, that is, that is Where stuff. is Sue's sock? You know what you should do? Write a 10-minute song about it. Oh, I should. Yeah, you should. Uh, if I was still doing stand-up, I'd do a 10-minute uh, bit on it. Last thing I wanted to do before we get to our guest. This is astounding to me. So I'm I'm kind of sick of Taylor Swift, right? She's had her run and do you know how much she's gonna profit from her tour slash movie? Uh just a ridiculous amount of millions. She is this isn't what the tour is grossing. This is what she's going to make. She's getting four point one billion dollars in profit from this tour in this movie. Now, all right. So how much does it cost to see a Taylor Swift concert for decent seats. For decent seats, probably for decent seats, probably no less than five hundred bucks. Oh, okay. I have a friend. Yeah, Henriette Mantel, who I know I know Henriette. I've met Henriette. So she is a huge Bruce Springsteen fan. Yes. So I talked to her. I don't know a couple of months ago. I I had this tickets week. to this show. It, it, he canceled. Yeah, well, so this was way, this was before he was, had canceled his shows. Yeah. She flew to Italy to see him because it was cheaper to do that than to buy tickets. In wow. Europe. That's crazy. Well, she got to see him. I, I, you know, to me, it's just, I just, I just, I don't know. Look, I just think it's ridiculous. Thing. Here's the thing, sir. This is, this is, these are words to live by. I think I coined this expression. Life is for living. Did I invent that? (laughs) (laughs) I'm all Hmm. about the experience. Sounds familiar. I'm all about the experience, Sue. Like I will, I don't spend on stuff, except obviously my shirts. I don't spend on stuff, but I spend on experiences, trips, concerts, but 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 you can afford that. Like oh no, I yeah. You know, I I mean, I just think about like families who have, you know, kids and they want to just like see a Dodger game. And, you know, the parking is like, if you know, the parking is what it like 50 bucks or something to park. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's probably 40 bucks in. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. I had a, I had a craft beer that was like 20 something dollars. Oh, well, don't even get me started. The Micheladas are $25 at Dodger Stadium. It's just a joke. It's, and, you know, and, and, I don't know how anybody affords to do this. And what really pisses me off, it's like if you can't afford, you know, cable television, you can't watch games. Yeah, yeah. Well, I got an I got an idea. 
Well, yeah. What if um, they did a full presentation for you about why you should go to the Taylor Swift concert and they offered you a free <laughs> massage? Would you watch a 90-minute presentation about going to the Taylor Swift concert and actually spend the money at the end? No. And that's what you should have said to the timeshare people at the very <laughs> beginning, at the very beginning. All right. Uh, our guest today is a best-selling author who has written on many subjects. His first book was Tough Jews, Fathers, Sons, and Gangster Dreams, about the Jewish gangsters of the 1930s. Since then, his books have included Avengers, a Jewish war story, Lake Effect, which is a memoir, uh, The Fish That Ate the Whale, about United Fruit President and Banana King Sam Zamuri, and Monsters, the 1980s. 85 Chicago Bears and the Wild Heart of Football. His latest book is When the Game Was War, the NBA's Greatest Season. Rich Cohen joins us. Rich, thank you for doing this, man. We really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. So I was a kid, huge sports fan in the 80s, and you obviously love the NBA from, from this book, which is fantastic. Congratulations. Um, why do you think the 87-88 season was the greatest in NBA history? Well, it's sort of like the moment when I was a kid, when all the planets aligned and were in a straight line out from the sun and that you had these four historic American sports dynasties that were all good, all dynasties at the same time, all in, all in various states of rise and fall. So you had the Celtics, arguably the best team ever with Larry Bird and Kevin McHale, and they were getting old, but they were still the Celtics. And you had the Lakers, the Showtime Lakers with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Magic Johnson. And they were also arguably the greatest team of all time. And they would win two in a row and one of the great teams of the 80s. And then you had the Pistons, who were the bad boys. That's Bill Lambeer, Isaiah Thomas, Dennis Rodman. And they sort of get left out of the conversation, but they were arguably the best team of all time. They really should have won three in a row. And then I always thought of, thought of it as kind of Game of Thrones on the hard court because... <laughs> You know, you watch Game of Thrones, the first season, you don't know actually who's going to be the hero, man. You get the wrong idea about who the story is about. And sort of you have all those teams, but the real hero to me, the team that's going to be the best of them all, which is just sort of coming into view, is the Bulls. It was the first year Michael Jordan won his first MVP. The Bulls won 50 games for the first time. And Scottie Pippen and Horace Grant, who were crucial to that team, were rookies. And the Bulls were just beginning their titanic struggle with the Pistons that would lead eventually to the championship. What I love so much about the book, I just have to just first of all say that I, I love your writing. Thank you. You are such an amazing writer. It's just vivid. It's cozy. And I, and I have to say, you give great metaphor. Huh. Your metaphors. And I just, I just have to read, I want to re read just a, f a few things that really, really stuck out to me that I, you know, some of my favorite stuff. So I loved how, and we're, we're going to talk about Isaiah Thomas and his ankle injury. Um, but you, you compared it to a supermarket, a supermarket cart with, with a punk wheel, which is just such a great visual. Um, and something that you wrote about Dennis Johnson, you talked about his stature when he was in high school. He was five nine. And it was only after graduation that he started to grow. He perfected his craft on the playground as he waited for his body to catch up with his dreams. <laughs> and well, it's just so poetic, such a, just a lovely way of explaining his 
his, his, his issue yeah. of Buckus. Thank you. I mean, it's funny because you notice a lot of the really great players grew late. Because when you're a small person, relatively small, because we're talking about basketball, professional basketball, you have to uh, learn crafty ways to beat the big people. You know, everybody who's ever been small knows that. You have to, so you kind of have to be better to be just as good. So a lot of the best players were small through their first years through high school, and they learned all these crafty ways to beat the big people and became better to be as good as the big people. And then they became big people too. So like Magic Johnson, who grew a little late, played point guard, traditionally a position for a smaller person, but he grew to be six foot eight and he stayed a point guard. So it was revolutionary that you had a guy this big in that position you could see over everybody. Michael Jordan used to put a lemon on his toes to try to grow at night. Everybody in Michael Jordan's family is like five foot nine. For some reason, he's, you know, whatever he is, six, 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 six. So must be the lemon, right? Yeah. And also hanging from a bar, you know, and, um, and, uh, and also Isaiah Thomas is unique and because he's sort of the hero of the book in some ways, because he's basically a small person who stayed small, but was able to play with people, you know, half a foot taller than without a problem. Now, it, it, you grew up in Chicago. It sounds like you can trace your love of basketball to Isaiah Thomas, who is a high school basketball legend there. Uh, what was it about Isaiah that really hooked you on the game? Well, first of all, if you remember Isaiah, he looked like about 10 years old. And so when I was 10, he looked like about my age. He was, you know, like five or six years older than me. He was, like I said, small. I was small. I played hockey at a pretty competitive level. And I was always given a lot of crap about being called squirt, half pint, peewee. I was just made a lot of fun of because I was small. And, uh, and the idea is Isaiah didn't play like he was small. So he was very, very, very tough. And my father had been a basketball coach and he spotted Isaiah locally right away and would take me to see him play when he was in high school. He came to our high school and played against our high school. And then we'd go around and see him play in tournaments. And we followed him when he went and played at Indiana for Bobby Knight and won a national championship. And then he went to the Pistons. And my father's from Brooklyn and he grew up playing basketball. He's from Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. He grew up playing basketball in Bensonhurst and Coney Island. And the way that Isaiah played and the guys in Chicago and Detroit played was a way I recognized from my father, which is it's no harm, no foul. You make the basket, you keep the ball, which means you could conceivably go out there and never touch the ball like a guy <laughs> running a pool table if you're playing against better players. And even when my father was, I played him in one-on-one -on -one in the driveway, he was an old guy as far as I was concerned. He'd get home from work and he'd play against me in his loafers and his suit pants and the mo the sound you most often heard the sound i associated with basketball as much as the sound of dribbling and sneakers was the sound of chain jingling in suit pockets because that was my father driving <laughs> you know my father is even if you go over him like you could i can go i was young i 15 i could jump over him and hit a layup over him and he would slam me into the garage door so the play would end with you know me in a heap at the bottom of the driveway sort of laughing because I just knew that that was the price you paid for making a layup. That's the way they played in Brooklyn. That's the way Isaiah played. And that's the way the Pistons played. And people in Chicago came to hate it because they were the enemies of the Bulls and seen as dirty. But that was the Chicago playground style. And what's amazing is that year, 70, 87, 88, the, the All-Star game was in Chicago Stadium, which was two blocks 
or about four blocks from a playground on the west side of Chicago where four of the guys in that all-star game grew up playing together hmm. on one all-star on one all-star game. That was Isaiah Thomas, Doc Rivers, Mo Cheeks, and Mark McGuire, all from one playground. Wow. Yeah. I went to the 88 all-star game. Oh, so do you remember? Did you I do. I do. Yeah. I, I actually, uh, I was dating somebody who was friends with someone who worked for, uh, David Stern. He was his assistant. So, um, but I, and you no. talk about, you talk about the brutal winter too, you know, the hair in your nose freezing and yeah, yeah. Or you spit and it freezes and your spit slides across the snow. Oh, that's my memory from the school bus waiting out for the school bus. But, um, yeah, and that was a particularly cold weekend because I just wanted to check the weather, you know, and, uh, it was also the year that, Michael Jordan won the slam dunk competition and everybody who watched it agreed that really Dominique Wilkins won. Yep. But the thought was if they give it to Jordan, no, if they give it to Wilkins, no, the, the, the judges aren't going to get out alive, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Hometown crowd. So you write about these great teams. As you mentioned, the Bulls are ascending, the Celtics past peak, the Lakers kind of at their apex. Um, and uh, Detroit is really emerging at this point. Um, they played a much more physical brand of basketball, and you write about this a lot. I mean, it's famously, there was the Kurt Rambis clothesline uh, a few years earlier in the uh, in the playoffs. It was, it was a different, and I'm guessing you would say better game. Would you say the more physical style was a better game? I think so. When I watch basketball now, it's sort of unrecognizable to me. You know, I always say it's like a city in the, during COVID, it was like, it's empty. You look at the area under the paint, it's empty. To me, a large part of the basketball game from the highest level NBA championships down to in our driveway was played right under the basket where you fought for possession of the ball. That was the game within the game. You had players like Dennis Rodman who only rebounded and rebounding. And, you know, because of the three point shot, there are the rule changes that make a lot of the physical stuff illegal. Um, and a lot of those rules were passed because of the uh, Pistons, because the Pistons were seen as endangering some of the marquee stars, and they sort of break in the code where they figured out how to clip the wings of the high-flying teams like the Lakers by playing very physically. And I think the thought was that that wasn't going to be as good of a product to put on TV. So, and then the other thing is the three-point became so predominant. And uh, because of that, even when you take a three-point shot and miss it, you know, it's a completely different kind of rebound. So the guys camped underneath and fighting for the ball. Then the, the center becomes less important, all this stuff. I like the real physical aspect. It was always uh, tend to me. Remember, basketball is a contact sport. You know, it's like hockey or football, not quite to that extent, but you're going to get banged around. I mean, Isaiah Thomas in those playoffs, if you want go back and watch him, there were two different times during those playoffs that he was unconscious. He was knocked out in games and ended up coming back into the game after being knocked out and winning the game. So uh, I kind of think that a lot of the things that I was taught about basketball and sports, which is it's kind of a war attrition and there's kind of a degree of who can stand more, who can take more. You know, I remember when I was a kid, we played a game called 21. You ever play that game? No, sure. And it would become, you know, it's every person for himself in that game. And it's all rebounding. And it would become by the end, like a game of tackle football. You know, remember my brother died throwing me into the, like over a hedge into the neighbor's yard during one of those games. <laughs> and that was, I got up and I was fine. So there was no foul, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a different era, but I think we, we missed something without it. 
Well, it's like street ball. You know, when I was living in New York, I used to, uh, you know, hang out in the village a lot. And that f- West 4th Street court. Yeah. I mean, I lived right by like, that court. I used to watch games on that court too. Yeah. It's like the most exciting basketball you could watch. Right. And there's a huge physical element. It's part of the game. And, um, you know, I do feel like in basketball, pro basketball, just like pro baseball, the, uh, the computer guys took over and they ran the algorithms and they figured you'd probably be better off taking only three-point shots. You'd win a greater percentage of the time, you know, and that just is an unintended consequence of the three-point shot. And it's kind of changed basketball. So it's become a little bit unrecognizable. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about Zeke, Isaiah Thomas, who I know is a player that you love. Um, you're from Chicago. You've got a, a different view of this, I think. I, I've always thought of him as a villain because he was really villainized by Michael Jordan. I, I always thought that their dispute was kind of a turf war. Zeke was a Chicago high school legend. Here comes Michael Jordan to sort of take over the town. Do you see it that way? Yeah, I think that's exactly what it was. It was a local dispute between, you know, who was going to win the hearts and minds of Chicago. And of course, Zeke had no chance because he was playing for a different team in a different city. And Michael Jordan was such a once in history kind of athlete who not only was so, uh, such a great player, but was also such a graceful and beautiful player. And, um, and what happened is, is in Chicago when they started to win those championships and Isaiah start, I mean, Michael started to become, you know, I like Mike and he started, I want to be like Mike and he became almost a Disney character. Michael Jordan for a lot of basketball fans became God. And when that happened, Isaiah became the devil because God's enemy is in the Bible. God's enemy is the devil. So God's enemy is, you know, is Isaiah Thomas. And Isaiah was, if you, Isaiah had a real hard edge and he said real stupid things. And most of these players figure out how to hide that side of themselves. So people realized finally when Michael Jordan was inducted into the hall of fame and stood up on the podium and started trashing guys he'd gone to high school with because they made a high school team instead of him, they realized, oh, maybe this guy isn't so nice. You know, that Michael Jordan also has a real hard edge. The difference is Michael Jordan was very savvy and very good at hiding it. And you'd say that Zeke was almost uh, more authentic in a Chicago way in that you he just showed you what he was on the court, off the court. And during his playing days, it really did him in. So one example of that, one of the things he's most hated for is after the uh, Pistons lost to the Celtics in Boston in the 87 playoffs, uh, Dennis Rodman said, oh, because Larry Bird had just won the MVP. If Larry Bird was a black player, he would just be considered another guy. Nothing special about him. And then they went to Isaiah and Isaiah said, I agree with Rodman. And it made Rod, uh, Rodman seem not, uh, Isaiah seemed like he wasn't gracious. He was a bad loser. He was nasty and he was maybe a racist. Okay. So, but the fact is like, it's a sport. You've just lost the biggest game of your life. And the reason you lost is because Larry Bird did a Vulcan mind trick on you. Because Larry Bird, if you remember that play, he faked one way, then went the other way. And Isaiah basically threw the ball right to him. And they made this play and won the game. So if you ask somebody right after they've lost the game in such a humiliating way, what they think of the guy that beat them, they might say something stupid like that. I don't think Isaiah actually ever believed that about Larry Bird. He was just embarrassed and pissed off. And what's more, he thought he was backing up Dennis Rodman, who said it for the same reason and was a rookie. So 
just think that that's those kind of incidents happen again and again and again. But I also think, as you mentioned, the Kurt Rambis thing, uh, Kurt Rambis getting clotheslined by it was Kevin like McHale. 1985, I think, right? Yeah, by Mikhail changed the whole. But see, see that people forget that. So for the for the Pistons, to, they didn't, they weren't focused really on winning an NBA title. They were focused on beating the Celtics. Couldn't go anywhere if they didn't beat the Celtics. The Celtics were a very violent, rough, occasionally dirty team, as seen there. And the Pistons, in order to get by the Celtics, had to become nastier, meaner, and more dirty than the Celtics, who had the biggest front line in the NBA. So they developed their style specifically to beat the Celtics. That's why they played that way. That's why Isaiah played that way. And if you put Isaiah on the Lakers, he would have played that way. If you put him on the Bulls, he would have played that way. He's just a great, great basketball player who the role to win a championship was sublimate his own talent into this greater system that could stand up to the team that had been bullying them, which was the Boston Celtics. Yeah, it's interesting how you say that that Isaiah would have played whatever style w- that he had to play to be successful on other teams. Right. Which, all, which, all which, they, all, was, which they all had to, right? And Isaiah was one of those guys, and there aren't, there aren't that many of them, who won every single place he went. So he won in high school, he won in college. But if you go back and go, you can go back and watch him play at Indiana, he played it completely different ways, a finesse player, you know, but that wasn't going to get the job done, you know, in the Eastern side of the NBA in the late eighties, it wasn't a finesse league exactly. And you had to be tough to get where you wanted to go. I mean, I had a t-shirt when I was a kid, I wore everywhere until it disintegrated that said, Chicago, you got to be tough. You know, and that was sort of the attitude in the whole. And I think what's the interesting thing about this story, the basketball story I think about is it's so Midwestern, you know, because a lot of these guys, Magic, Bird, and Isaiah are all Midwesterners. Yep. They all basically grew up playing against each other in high school tournaments. The only sort of outsider from that group is the guy who would come in, play a different way and change the NBA. And that was Jordan from North Carolina. So Charles, I've got a different thing on this toughness. So Charles Oakley said that players were hungrier back then. If you weren't playing, you were showing weakness. So if you were really hurt and you weren't in the game, you were showing weakness. Um, Do you believe, do you believe that players were hungrier back then? I believe that things have changed. One of which is players can play a lot longer because of the medical treatment. And they're aware it's like, if you, knew you could live forever, forever, you might be more careful about getting in a car accident. You know what I mean? It's like they, so back then there was really, there's this pressure between the longevity of your career or the demands of the moment. And back then it seems like they always chose the demand of the moment. And there was a sense that if you showed like the other team, it hurt you. That was a sign of weakness. And that wasn't just in basketball. That was every sport. Remember my father trying to explain to me, cause I was a little too young. What was great about the running back and later movie star, Jim Brown? Yeah. So the thing about Jim Brown is they hit him so hard and he popped right up. Yep. Like they didn't even affect him, had no effect. And the idea, the end was the other team would lose hope. Like this guy, he can't beat him. He can't be hurt. You know, so you didn't want to show that you could be hurt because a sign of weakness would cause, would make it worse. You had to show that you could not be hurt. And I think that that lasted even through when I was a kid and some things have changed it. One of which is our awareness of the dangers of concussions. So you're told that if you think that you might have a concussion, you got to be careful. You got to be tested. I remember even when I was a kid playing hockey and getting laid out and seeing stars 
But my only thought was to get back on my skates as quick as I can and act like nothing had happened and no one had hurt me, partly because it was embarrassing to get knocked down and you wanted to show that no big deal. And I think that that's changed because people are aware that maybe that behavior is stupid. But that, that stupidness is what was dominant in a lot of sports when I was a kid. Uh, you tell this story through Larry Bird and Michael Jordan and Isaiah Thomas and Magic Johnson. And what struck me, one of the things that struck me about the book is in the modern NBA, which I cover on a daily basis, um, the idea is let's team up. So Giannis teams up with Lillard. I saw them play last night. KD goes to the Warriors. Harden, Kyrie yeah. always look. These guys are always looking for the perfect situation, whereas I cannot imagine a world where Magic Johnson would say, I'm going to team up with Larry and we're going to win a championship. There was there was too much between these guys for them to ever consider, yeah, let's get together and try to win. Yeah, well, that's something that when people talk about LeBron's career being as good or better than Jordan's career, I'm like, but Jordan won all his championships with one team. And that, like, to me, was a, always a value. You know, and now that's changed and it's good for the players with the money and the free agency. But one is you think they never want to get too tough with each other because they might be playing with each other the next year. And there's a sense that they're all in this club together that separates them from the rest of the world. Whereas before I felt like because those players were together with each other in one city for so many years, they were really stood for their city. And they felt like Detroit represented Detroit and gave Detroit a lot of pride and played in a style that was considered like, you know, said something about Detroit and the toughness of a city that was having hard times, but wasn't going to sit around and cry about it, was going to go out and fight and win. So, and I do think that the idea of switching teams uh, was such a crazy and awful. I think it's one of the reasons people don't care about sports as much anymore, you know, because basically I was talking to somebody about this. If, if you were 12 years old in 1984, when Michael Jordan came to the Bulls, you watched him play and play with certain players from basically 12 before high school into your mid-20s by which time you might. That's your whole life. That's your whole life. And this person has grown up alongside of you. And there's something different about it. And now it's like these almost like it's more like they're like Marvel movies than anything else. Yeah. Like, let's see if we can get Aquaman into this group. And then definitely. <laughs> you know, it's more well, like. movies. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, and it's it's worse for the fans. I mean, you know, I grew up, you know, I'm I'm in my mid sixties, and I grew up in New York, and I was a Knicks fan, so I watched, you know, Cassie Russell, and you know, and uh, you know, uh, Willis Reed, and and you know, their top five, and as a Mets fan, the same thing. And nowadays, you know, the season starts, and I I like. When did he become a Texas Ranger? Yeah. You well, know, I last bizarre. night and like all the players had been all the players playing in the Texas Houston thing had all been the star players of other teams, you know? So, and the problem, the reason why that's a big problem is really a problem in the NBA is like season's 82 games long. That's very boring. Ultimately, if you're a fan and almost everybody makes the playoffs in the NBA. So ultimately, if you're a fan, what, what keeps you interested is what's the particular storylines of particular players and particular teams that may and the rivalries. So when the Bulls would play the Pistons, even if neither team was going to the playoffs, it would be a big game in and of itself. Like the Bears playing the Packers, it doesn't really matter what their record is. The Bears are playing the Packers. So uh, I think that when they move all the players around, you kind of lose all that. And what happens is you get this long, long, long regular season 
that starts to feel like an exhibition season that never ends. And then you have the playoffs, which feel like the NCAA tournament with both teams. So, and it like, they can't figure out what to do about it now. And a lot of times for coaches, if that's the game, it makes the most sense to sit your best players. Once you know where you're going to be in the playoffs, no reason to have them play, you know, unless there's some individual record they're going for. So it just, it kind of devalues. It's like, they kind of got a little greedy, the owners, in that they wanted everyone to make a playoff, everyone to have a chance, everyone to move around. And they've kind of, the, the regular season loses meaning. And like when the Bulls finally won in 1991 and they beat the Lakers, it wasn't like a great playoff or great finals. It was the end of like a six-year journey. It was like a dragon quest. Yes. That's why we all got down on our hands and knees and cried. We, since we were little kids, every spring ended with this horrible frustration of Dennis Rodman hurling Scottie Pippen out of bounds into a stanchion, you know, and you wanted the police to go arrest Rodman more than anything else. (laughs) Like you were so mad. And then when they finally won and the Pistons collapsed and even walked off the court without congratulating the Bulls, even though we all, that was all part of the drama, you know, it was like the most satisfying thing. That was the one problem for a Bulls fan, which is, Everything after beating the Pistons was a little anticlimactic, you know. Uh, well, listen, uh, it is a it is a great book. Absolutely loved it. If you're a basketball fan, um, it is absolute must read. This is this has been great. Congratulations on the book. It's called When the Game Was War: The NBA's Greatest Season. Rich, thanks a lot for coming on, man. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And there you have a Rich Cohen fantastic book. If you're an NBA fan, absolute must read. I do disagree with him though, Sue. About? I like today's brand of basketball in the NBA. I love open court. I love great three-point shooting, uh, logo threes. I'm glad they eliminated hand checking so great athletes can do what they can do. So although that was a great era, I remember it really well. I'm glad that the game has evolved out of that. How about you? I'm not a big fan of the three-point shooting. I think it's just too much. Yeah. And I like more of an inside game. Hmm. So you like old school? I, I like more old school. I like seeing more in the paint than yeah. I do on the perimeter. I'm, I'm at the new school. Okay. You're at the old school. I'm at the new school. But it's a great book. You should definitely read it. Uh, I think he has a special affection for Isaiah Thomas. Uh, which which comes through in the book loud and loud and clear. All right, well, there you have it. There's the Culture Pop Podcast. I want to remind you, if you're watching on YouTube, uh, definitely subscribe to the podcast. If you are listening on Apple or on Spotify, please leave us a five-star review and uh, and we will, uh, and, a, and a comment is always good. Helps us with the algorithm. I've got uh, Culture Pop Podcast t-shirts. Uh, if you make a comment on one of our platforms, uh, just drop us an email, maceandsue at gmail.com and we will send you a Culture Pop Podcast t-shirt. We appreciate all you guys out there who watch and listen every single week. Uh, Sue, great seeing you. And we will see everybody next time on the Culture Pop Podcast.